The Razor Show is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Patriot ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest easiest way to get into the game. We're not just talking sports tickets here, folks. There's also music and theater stuff as well. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download the Game Time app and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Welcome to The Razor Show with the Athletics' Nick Underhill and Jeff Powell, plus three-time Super Bowl champion Matt Chatham. And here we go. Let's dive into this thing. This is the Razor Show. I'm Matt Chatham on a sleepy Monday morning, rainy and mucky, just as it was a day ago. Uh, you know, got through that Browns game late last night. Uh, started reviewing my notes this morning. I wanted to hop on here, but this would be a little unique and distinct from the last couple times we hopped on the air with you. I haven't done like a really hardcore, lengthy game review in a bit. Uh, last several shows haven't been that, but I did want to get into one of those because there were a lot of highs and a handful of lows that meant need a little extra explanation in sort of the context of the crazy-ass game we saw yesterday in the monsoon. So uh, I wanted to get into all the things. I wanted to double-check what my eyes thought they saw live and in person last night, uh, and I feel pretty comfortable, comfortable about where things sit now after the review. So Thought it was a good time here to now jump on and get into that kind of show. But before we go there, I have to hit the pause button and start on the rest of the league. So, you know, I oftentimes hesitate or, you know, I go through my own notes and I sort of plan out a script for the show and where I want to take this thing generally. And, you know, a lot of times I have a bad habit, self-criticism uh, here of of uh, speaking to the least common denominator out there. I know there are some crazy people, the shoe pissers, ju bridge jumpers, whatever phrase we want to use, that, that are going to panic no matter what the hell happens, that see the worst in every single thing that goes down, no matter what it is. Expects 40-point wins, 30-point uh, wins aren't enough, 20 is, good God, what are you doing? Uh, you win by 10 and they should move the franchise. I mean, I it, when I speak to that crowd, maybe I'm wasting my time because they've just got psychological problems of their own and they're you know, someone who can't be, uh, can't be satisfied. So I'm not going to be able to satisfy that crowd. And I think if you've drawn, been drawn to the razor show with Jeff and Nick, two of the most responsible reporters out there, hooked in connected guys doing a great job with uh, unique content throughout the week to give you more perspective, not less. Uh, and the best way to get less perspective is to overreact to bullshit. And so I take up the, uh, sort of the, the tripod and I'm the other part of that threesome there, uh, and try to give you the more game relevant stuff. Uh, but if I spend too much of my time going, here's why your crazy actions are crazy. Well then, you know, it's, it's, it's not a particularly, uh, helpful use of my time, but I think there are moments where I at least we need to address the fruit of some fear and concern and consternation and pearl clutching and things like that, that go on. Insofar as we can't do it every week, but we do occasionally need to touch on it, maybe as much as anything, so you can beat back those types at the water cooler on Monday or Tuesday. 
or throughout the week when they say, oh, that Patriots offense, I can't believe it. They're sucked. The offensive line sucks. The offense sucks. What can they possibly do once they face a good team? So, you know, here the reason I bring it up in that sort of snarky tone uh, and, and premise is this good team idea. Uh, when you have uh, this sort of Team X <laughs> theme, something we've been joking about for years, this mythical made-up team of all-stars that might be on your Madden <laughs> team or whatever, that's not who's in the NFL. If you're going to have this fear around Halloween, this 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 concerns, the list of concerns with a Z, of things that might be out there, you have to look at what's out there to find out if the concern is even relevant to this particular universe. And I think in the NFL yesterday was incredibly instructive of what's going on, where your team, uh, this Patriots team, my team, my old team, uh, where they sit relative to, to what else is going on in the league. And uh, there is not some mythical Team X. This is a league full of team with flaws, and the Patriots right now are less flawed than everyone else and pretty far out in front. And I think it's instructive to look that way. Uh, let's just sort of scan quickly through everything that's out there. Where might one place some concerns before we get into the Cleveland game and how irrational are they? Uh, if, if you're attempting to make your team perfect in your head in October, it's a fool's errand. And I want I hope this illustrates that, and then we bounce off this point a few minutes from now and can move on to the real meat. But hopefully as much as anything to remind people, not that you do that if you're a listener to the show, you're probably the ones who don't, but I think it arms you better to go have this conversation for someone else who has that personal weakness. Don't worry. Don't sweat through your pillow. Let's get into this. Now, you look at the Redskins-Vikings game. Uh, Vikings are a team that I, I remember this a year ago, and Patriots and Vikings were uh, you know, kind of a built-up game for the season. You know, What are the Patriots going to do when they finally face a wide receiver duo like Diggs and Thielen? Uh, you know, something like that. You know, they've, oh, that's a high flying offense. Patriots really hadn't seen something like that till then. What's going to go down? You're doing this against other teams, but what happens when they have a duo like that and Kyle Rudolph and some running game and blah, 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 blah. Patriots last year beat them 24 10. It was never competitive. The game, uh, they blasted out up at 1.17.7, 24-3, and then they get the garbage thing late. It, it was just not a competitive game. You know, it was it was, it was 24-10. Uh, and so that was one of those things where I was like, okay, you see some above-average teams in the NFC that you don't often see, and there's sort of this MO that's built for these teams, that what's going on with them, and they'll be scary and different from what I'm used to seeing over here in the AFC. Uh, that was an eye-opener for me to remind myself that don't get over consumed with what goes on over there. Uh, there's parity in the NFL. There, you know, for just about everyone but New England, quite frankly, on a year-in-year-out basis. And the Vikings are a middling team. So they've got a couple names you know, yes, but they play close games with bad teams a lot. And the Patriots don't play close games with bad teams. They blow out bad teams. So uh, let's go down the docket. The, the, the Vikings, though, are sitting there at, you know, Pretty record, six and, six and two. So that's one of the teams that you haven't really been paying attention to what they do. And you look down and say, oh, they're six and two. And they got digs and they got Thielen. And look at their fantasy football numbers. And But it's a middling team, folks. So that's over there. The record's pretty. They're nowhere near New England right now. If they arrived in Foxborough next weekend, you would expect at least the 14-point win from a season ago, if not more. And that's not competitive. When we start talking two-score two stuff, especially in the line world of Vegas, those aren't close teams. That's not a team that's close to the one that 
you know, that small little cult gets, uh, that gets a lot of concerns and, uh, want to make sure that we, we point that out. Atlanta struggling team, but here's the important part, you know, maybe their head coach is on the way out. I love Dan Quinn, but there seems like an inevitability with sort of the, the turnaround there. I hope that doesn't happen, but, uh, that's a team that's really struggling against everyone. And Seattle goes out there and, uh, really struggles down the stretch, ekes by them seven point win against a one and seven team. Patriots don't have seven point wins against one and seven teams. You just don't see that. It tells you intuitively, and we can go back down the rest of the Seahawks record. It, that's not the important part here, but it, it should tell you, well, that's the kind of thing you'd never see New England do. You'd never see them stumble in the way as they're currently configured, the way they've been blowing through bad teams this season. Um, they've, played bad teams and they're never within one score of a bad team. So that team must be far behind them. And they are, it's just, it is, it is what it is. Now the bills game, we know they had a very tough in division game. We could do this. We won't do this, but you could go out, go throughout the entirety of the NFL and look at in division games with teams where one is decidedly better based on the rest of their games versus someone in division who's not as good as they are. Uh, but then on that day, they draw close to one another and the, the the Bills are clearly that team for the Patriots. There was that 16-10 win. The Bills, other than that Patriots game, really hadn't beaten anyone. Uh, they had played a lot of close teams with some pretty mo- mediocre teams. So, again, there's the difference between the Patriots and them. Other than the head-to-head, when the Bills had played mediocre teams, they eke by them. When the Patriots play mediocre teams, they, abol- they, they, they completely annihilate them. So... That's important point of context to understand. It's not just that one day where the Patriots on the road struggled quite a bit, Edelman gets hurt, all those things, uh, and has a six-point win on the road in a tough place in division. It's remembering that there's going to be much more space between them when you get them back to Foxborough. If you pay attention to how their their season arc is going, the Bills are now up against it. they got a little soft portion of their schedule coming up right now, but one team in that soft portion was the Eagles. The Eagles have been bombed on in the last couple weeks. Multi-score losses, uh, just destroyed by the Cowboys. I don't recall. Let me click on air real quick, see if it comes up quickly. Uh, who else did the Eagles get bombed on? Yeah, the Eagles were an 18-point loser to that same Vikings team that's, middling, that's sort of muddling around over there. And then they were a 27-point uh, loser to the Cowboys. So the Eagles were a struggling team. You know, they were really struggling, struggling offensively. And they travel to Buffalo and beat Buffalo by 18. And that's the moment where you say, oh, okay, well, and maybe the Bills uh, are coming back to earth a little bit. They had a great performance against New England. They made it tough. Uh, but it's a pretty limited team overall in a long 16-game season. So they're going to have to really change course. Or I think you start to understand the Bills are a full tier, if not two, behind where New England will be over the course of a long season. The Eagles themselves, I mean... Yeah, they're they're a roller coaster team. Really, they look great on the road in this Bills game. Give them respect, and, and remember this, this this Eagles team is one of the teams the Patriots are supposed to be concerned about when things get harder. And you'll face them. I mean, it'll be a slightly more, um, you know, it'll be a slightly better test. But it's a team that lost to the Lions. It's a team that lost to the Falcons. It's a team that we just mentioned got bombed on by the Vikings and Cowboys. When you hear people say, "Oh, the Patriots schedule after that bye week," that's when it gets serious. They're mentioning that same Cowboys team that the Jets beat. They're mentioning the Eagles, which I just went through, who they've beaten. You're mentioning the Texans, who play bad teams close every week. We'll get to that in a second. They've had some victories. They're they're plugging along. They're they're scraping stuff together. But that's your list, folks. We're what are we talking about when they play great teams? They're they're the really 
there aren't any, okay? The Patriots are far out above with just about everyone other than I'll get to those couple teams here later, at least as where things stand right now. Chargers, Bears, two teams floundering. Not, no reason to even spend time on them. Lions, they're kind of the scrapper team out there. And, you know, obviously there's a soft spot there for Matt Patricia, but 31, 26 winners against the Giants. Uh, you know, that, that's an NFC team sort of in that same vein, real close to the Vikings. The Vikings record looks a little better, but they're a, they're a rock fight kind of team. You might get an ugly battle if you run into them. The Titans, 27, 23 winners over a really bad Bucks team, but give Rabes credit. Four, got his group to 4-4, four and four, threw a quarterback change, made the absolute right move. They're 2-0 and oh since that time, but the Bucks are floundering, and you know these this this other AFC team here, the Titans, with that might be a playoff contender on the the fringe of the outside of this thing. They're struggling with that sort of tier team, if we can put it that way. Now here's the one that I love, and I, I was tweeting about this on Monday morning, and it's the Colts. And I understand the I understand the 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 draw the the want to to we got to come up with a threatener to the to Patriots we have to come up with storylines we have to come up we have to buy into a team publicly as sort of a national media we have to get behind someone we have to start believing the narrative of some other some other group that they're going to be the ones to finally unseat them and I, the Colts were starting to get some of that attention you could hear it earlier in the year when it's like oh man they went and beat the Chiefs at Kansas City nineteen thirteen okay for real. Well, they'd lost to the Raiders the week before. That's a little weird. They'd lost to the Chargers also early in the year. We know how much the the Chargers are struggling this year. So that's your darling, folks. That's your Indianapolis Colts that are now the threat to the Patriots, the team that's lost to the Chargers, lost to the Raiders, and here's their big key moment. I mean, great. It is a very impressive win to go into Kansas City. I'm not trying to take that particular win away from them. just saying there's far more context to who they are over the long run. Uh, and you have to look at the good and the bad. Uh, this particular weekend, again, credit them for getting the victory. It's good to advance. It's hard to win in the NFL, but you cannot airlift concerns with a Z. You can't airlift a pair of wet socks into the Colts drawer here because they've beaten the Broncos at home 15 to 13 led by that Joe Flacco offense, and it's just it's been a real struggle for those guys throughout this year. They're shedding assets. They get rid of Emmanuel Sanders. That team, a week after that, goes into Indy, and you're down to a Adam Vinatieri a late big clutch kick to win 15-13. That's the team that you want to sort of put a, you know, a wreath around their neck and think of them as Patriot challengers? Really? Really? That, that's, that's your king? Okay, well, good luck with that. So, again, I, I, I snark over the top here, obviously. You can hear what I'm doing, hopefully, in my voice. But it's in part to just break up these stupid narratives. Let the season play out. And, and, and in fairness, the Patriots aren't crowned anything yet either. But let's just sort of get off this idea of trying to find the team to crown above them early or trying to find the team to just sort of rally behind and sort of, you know, everyone put a hand on them and push them across the line to sort of talk them into the realm of the Patriots have lived in that none of these other teams have. The Colts barely beat a bad Broncos team at home. If the Patriots did that exact same scenario, there would be torches marching up and down Route 1. you got to blow out the Broncos if you're a really good team. You, I mean, that would be the perception here locally. Uh, and, and let's put it this way. There's probably going to be a moment between now and the end of the season where the Patriots either lose to a team they should have beaten or they take a bad team. And they've not yet done this this season, but they take a bad team and 
beat them by a score or less. And that will set off the old, ah, what's wrong with this team? This is just not going to be good enough in the playoffs. And remember, take that same mentality. If that's, if that's your rationale for figuring out NFL football, maybe not yours, but that buddy at the cooler, as I mentioned, um, if that's the way you think through things, how the fuck did the Patriots win the Super Bowl last year? Because those benchmark games don't really show up. There was a, some ugly up-and-down performances even in November and December. But they righted themselves through coaching, through roster switching, through scheme changes, through toggling, pulling this string a little more than that one and learning and going through the travel and getting better. And I think that's the thing you always have to remember here. But let's go a little bit deeper here on the snark train. Choo-choo. Uh, so as we look here at the Rams, Rams, 24-10 winner on the Bengals. Let's put that kind of uh, context uh, contest in context. The Bengals, an 0-18. Can you imagine a Patriots home game against an 0-18? Only winning by two scores. Only putting up as an offense 24 points. Sounds familiar? It's what you saw yesterday, except the Bengals team is even still far behind the Browns. So, that again, that small little sect, it's out there worried about what how this will project against uh, Team X and, uh, you know, the Michael Jordan All-Stars or whatever. Uh, that That's that's a kind of performance where, I, again, if you just sort of transpose New England in there as the top team and say, hmm, what would happen to the Patriots at home barely beat the Bengals? Not barely. It's a two-score win. It's a very comfortable, nice, solid win. Good job. Uh, but I'm trying to use a little of that paranoia uh, and, and apply it to other teams and see how things will look. Now, here's your impressive winner. And now I'm going to start talking about the teams that I do have comparable respect for uh, as the Patriots, where they sit now. The Saints. I think the Saints definitely sit in that realm of a dangerous team. There's your legit dangerous team. 31 to nine winners over the Cardinals. Their one loss this season was the was the game where in game they lose uh, Drew Brees, Teddy Bridgewater's an in game starter. Clearly hadn't practiced at that offense. Sucked on that day. They lose. It's completely understandable. But they've been really good before and after that game. And they, granted, they they just scrapped it together with the Teddy Bridgewater games. Their offense was really muted. Uh, but they won, right? So that's a good makeup team. That's if you want to simply you know every time the Patriots you know have these only two score wins against the uh, you know a team like the Browns and only score 27 points or whatever and only comfortably win yeah there's one team maybe two arguably where yesterday's performance against the Browns wouldn't beat a, a particular other opponent and i think the Saints probably are that opponent you got to be really sharp against them you got to bring your best and you're better than them i think over the course of 16 but that's the concerns and fears. But again, if if you want to have those concerns and fears, you're talking about what would happen in February. And the Patriots themselves obviously would change dramatically so before from before between now and then. So the Jaguars put it on the Jets, beat them by two scores. Again, all I keep coming back to is what does that tell us about the Cowboys? <laughs> the Cowboys who bombed on the Eagles, but then were beaten by the Jets at home. Then the Patriots annihilated those same Jets. Then the Jets go and get two scored by the Jags. 
So where do the Jags fit in all this puzzle? They've been a really struggling team this year as well. Four and four, pretty mediocre themselves, at least average anyway. Can beat you, can look good, can be look really bad. They're kind of a week in, week out kind of situation. Um, so yeah, who knows where, where that stands. But I, I think as much as anything, Cowboys are that other team where because of the big brand and the big star, I think people look at them and say, oh, there's a concerns. There's a team that yesterday's performance might not be good enough against. No, dude, that, that, that's the, the Jets beat them. And uh, the Patriots bombed on the Jets. So I, I wouldn't throw that because you know the brand and the star and all that. And you know Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott and a few names that that's somehow some dramatically different test than what they've already been seeing. It's not. It really isn't. I think the record screams that. Uh, the 49ers, though, this is my other team. This is, and I think this is a fair and honest statement here that the, the Niners are a 7-0 team now, and they're not just winning. They did have the ugly, muck-it-up kind of game winning in Washington a week ago, and it's understandable. Their conditions were a lot like what the Patriots faced yesterday against the Browns, but in fairness, the, the Patriots did a lot more with that opportunity. It was a multi-score win, much more comfortable than the Niners sort of muddling around and winning that thing, I think 9-0 or something like that. But they got to come back home. They faced a Panthers team that's been pretty plucky this year. Uh, Zach, the Allen kid had not yet thrown an interception. They get three off them, so they have a great defensive performance, uh, really blow things up there for the other side, and score 51 points themselves. If you want to make a Patriots analogy, I think that's your one. I think that's your one where you say, okay, that's a defense that's playing awfully well in a pretty steady offense, uh, more so than – some of the other formals to see out there. And actually, in fairness, the, the Saints kind of sit in that same vein. The Saints have played really good defense, and uh, offense has been good enough in Breeze's absence. And now Breeze comes back, and they're a little bit better. But again, they were still playing the Cardinals, who, you know, bad team. Uh, I don't think much is expected of them. So, you know, it was a 22-point win against them. Uh, good, comfortable home victory. You would obviously expect the Patriots to do similar, if not more similar, similar if not more stuff to the Cardinals, were they to be in Foxborough this weekend. So that kind of is what it is. We always know the Patriots put fourteen on a fourteen point margin between themselves and the Brown, kind of cruising along, seventeen point lead early in that game, and then obviously it changes the mode. We'll get into that particular breakdown here in a second. The Texans, eh, they're facing a three and four, you know, a three and three Raiders team at home. Beat them by three again. I think panic in the streets here of the Patriots at a home game against the Raiders and only beating by three. It just is what it is. So are the Texans some concern? Shouldn't be. I mean, it's they're an above-average team. They're, they deserve credit for being an above-average team. But again, that's your other team on that list, the late-season teams to worry about. The Eagles, the Texans, the Cowboys, and uh, the Chiefs, who... We'll get to them here in just a second. So, again, the, the, the Texans are winning. Tip of the cap. It's hard to win in the NFL, but they certainly don't warrant concerns. Now, here's the one that I think is really sort of the bell cow for worries, and it's the Packers and Chiefs. Uh, it's really two in one sort of bottle here. What can be gleaned from this game? What should be gleaned from this game? The Chiefs? They're without their quarterback, so the expectations have to drop considerably. They put up 24 without their quarterback, and uh, I actually think in this game, the Chiefs' performance is maybe a little more impressive than the Packers. It's hard to win in Kansas City. I get that, but now, if you will recall, the Chiefs have lost three times at home this year. 
pretty amazing. They lost to the Colts, they've lost to the Texans, and now they've lost to the Packers. Granted, this last one is with Matt Moore, quarterback, but that wasn't, the, you know, they had to go to the backup, and that's going to be tough. And I think Moore's done an admirable job. They can give you 24 points with your backup and a quarterback. You need to play good enough defense to win with that at home. And if you can't, well, then it says there's a greater problem going on in your team than just the absence of the quarterback. But three home losses, uh, three losses to teams that may or may not be playoff teams. Colts and, and Texans will be probably fighting out for one spot there. And the Packers look like a uh, a playoff team on the other side, but they're a tear down definitely, uh, in, unquestionably so, from that Saints and Niners group. Saints and Niners are blowing out, blowing it, blowing the roof off things. Uh, really looking comfortably better than other teams, just as we mentioned the Patriots have on this side of the draw. Uh, but the Packers, uh, you know, again survive in advance, good job. But um, one score win to a homeless. Mahomeless, Mahomeless, are you Mahomeless? Do uh, Mahomeless Chiefs team in Arrowhead doesn't look quite as good because you know the, the Chiefs were down a guy and uh, one of the most important guys in this league, and you're able to eke out a one scorer against them. I just thought that if the Packers were in that realm of the Saints or Niners over in the NFC, you'd do a lot more in that situation than what the than what they did. I think this speaks pretty loudly to the Packers being a notch below those other two teams and nowhere near the Patriots. Again, we saw this last year when the Packers came to New England. It was all built up. It was all this sort of hype of what it would be. You know, Patriots, uh, Packers, you know, Rodgers, Brady, all that stuff. And uh, that game was 31 to 17, 14 point game, not competitive. I know the I know the Packers have inc- have improved themselves this year, but it's not like a marked markedly different change in personnel for either team. It's still going to look a lot the same. And how do they match up again on a one-off on a neutral site? Uh, that Packers team is has struggled with middling teams. They have so you know they've they've had some impressive wins. They've had some close wins that are a little less impressive. They lost themselves to the Eagles, uh, and uh, you know they're a good team. It's, and I hate to say that it sounds like me saying good team is an insult. Being a good team is, is a, it's good to be good. But uh, that wouldn't warrant concerns. Let's put it that way. So that's your whole NFL. I mean, that's really all of them in a bucket there. Uh, the Ravens, we'll talk about them much more next week. Obviously, they were on a bye week this week, week with the Patriots. So I wanted to get through that and say, when you're having these worries, whom for are you having them? Is that, that's a rough sentence, but I think you understand my point. And hopefully you're not the one again that, that's, that's having these worries. Uh, that in the, in the instance that the Patriots need to improve themselves, they always do. They hopefully will. They usually typically do. If you're placing a chip, whether or not they'll get better or worse, better is the safest chip on earth in the NFL. Um, and again, any issues going on right now, you have to enter in context. Let's do that. Let's get to the game context from this one. So this is something I think I can really share from just getting to be there. You know, the experience of actually being on the field and having played in crazy environments myself as a player in the past. Uh, Yesterday was, you're feeling fortunate to handle the ball. You're feeling fortunate to cut and break down. It was so windy and it was so wet and it was so gross out there. And it was such a sustained rain pregame and then through really the first 
two and a half quarters and then just missed it really mid-third on, that you're really, really fortunate to have no ball handling mistakes, to be able to complete a handful of passes, to be able to make cuts and not fall down, to be able to tackle occasionally and not have the you know crazy missed tackles. You saw guys sliding off them throughout the game. Um, and you know, really weathering that first half, getting out to the 17 nothing lead, you did better situationally than the other side did. You handled ball disruption uh, in your favor as opposed to them. But I, I think, again, I, I almost put this in the vein of the Thursday night game. Survive in advance. Weird, wacky game. The conditions make it nutty. Uh, the, you're almost shot putting the ball out. It's not spinning. There were several throws. We're watching back the broadcast. Brady didn't necessarily get the... the, the uh, the threads or the why can't I the laces? He didn't necessarily get the laces. He catches a, a side ball because the snap's a little off. The snap was a was a was a was a hassle for both sides. The center for the Browns and for for Teddy Karras. It wasn't easy to get your block to get that thing out from under you. You're standing in half an inch of of soaked rain that's coming up alongside your cleats. Uh, you saw guys slip and fall, and yeah, it was messy in line. The, the blocking was good enough, good enough for a big comfortable win, but no, it certainly wasn't perfect. Uh, but the conditions were such a weirdo situation. In those conditions, to beat anyone by two scores, good, great, thank you, good, done, over. On to the next thing. Um, but let's kind of go through what else is going on here that I think uh, makes it even a secondary box beyond just the conditions. And here's another thing to understand context-wise. I sent a little tweet out during the game, that sort of a wrap of the game to help understand, put it all in context. Both your tight ends, which are now playing pretty major roles that had to be used quite a bit in this game, have been in Foxborough for like 12-ish days. So super early here. Uh, so Ben Watson, 38-year-old guy, getting himself back up to speed, was a really nice contributor on the day, did a nice job even solo blocking occasionally on, on, on Garrett. I thought that was pretty impressive. But got out there, made one-ish, I believe, catches something to sort of help and contribute, but blocked Got a big rep count. Tomlinson had some blocks, missed a couple. Uh, wasn't perfect, but showed a positive sign to why, okay, with time, talk to me a month from now. That guy can win some one-on-one -on -one blocks against outside linebackers, can be competitive against defensive ends, can pro provide some protection help. It probably isn't going to catch any balls. But, hey, the mistakes, the misses, there's, it's slippery underfoot, and the guy's only been playing two weeks of live football uh, because he's been on the, he'd been on the street all year. Uh, so, you know, it is what it is. That's the people they chose to go with. Today is step two of ten steps. So that's part of understanding the old offensive operation. Where it's going to be today won't be where it'll be tomorrow, predictably so. Uh, on the offensive line, this was wild to me. And one thing I wanted to touch on here was when we found out that Shaq Mason – one of your best offensive linemen on the team. The, the Shaq is is a really good guard. Uh, maybe not having an all-pro year like we've seen him have a year ago. He's had some ups and downs, but he's still very, very competitive. He's still going to win 8 out of 10 blocks, whatever it would be, uh, at a higher rate than most, let's put it that way. And when you lose Shaq, um, I was surprised. We kind of had hints of this the week when he was a DNP late. We're like, oh, wait, this isn't just a – tested in game time or just rested, he might actually miss this. When you realize that, we had to start going down the list. And I'm, we're thinking Jermaine Luminor, uh, the big dude that came in uh, as an extra blocker in previous weeks. I kind of sort of figured that would be your guard insert. And him not inserting a guard was a little bit questionable, I'm, uh, befuddling, let's say it that way. Because, I, you know, he's a bigger body. That's more your true... NFL guard, 320, or north of three, big, thick guy. We're going to move people on this wet day kind of thing. Um, but they went with James Ference. And let me be 
crystal clear here. I'm not knocking James as a pro. He's been around since I believe like 2014. He's bounced around a few places. He's been up and down off practice squads here. He was cut here at one point, I think early in the at the end of the preseason. He really struggled in a late preseason game uh, at, at guard. Uh, they plugged him in there because he's really been a center for this team. And I thought when it was David Andrews, it was going to be Karras as the backup center, uh, working him at center seemed to sort of lose the value proposition there because even though that's James' best position, that's what he's built to do, that's what he's that's what he's done, that's who he is as an NFL player. He's a, he's a guard center, but he's really a center, right? Because he's a 6'2 guy, six, man, I don't know if they call him 6'3, but he's not a 6'5 guy. He's not three north of 300 pounds. He's, you know, I've seen old listings of him at 289, and I've seen him personally just out and about around the around the stadium. That's that's right. This is not a big guy. This is a this is a true center. Got some quickness to him, but he's not the biggest guy in the world. So the the oddball part to me is that when you know I could understand that this maybe with the wet conditions and the uncertainty of all the other things going on around the offense. I mean, adding in Sanu, and I know that's a big part of it. Um, maybe the idea of putting Ference to his natural position of center and moving Karras over to guard would, in a vacuum, be the absolute best way to go in this sort of quick emergency situation that the Patriots offensive line was in. But in doing that, you know, Ted's been snapping for eight weeks now. Maybe not changing around who Tom takes the ball from was the thought. Who knows? But if you went back to, say, a preseason configuration where it's still Andrews as the frontline guy and tuning alongside of him and Shaq beside him. Most of the second uh, wave guys uh, configurations, I believe, would have Karras at guard and, and Ference at center. But I think probably just for continuity's sake, it, Ted's been running at center for so long, let's just roll with that. But by body type, Ted, Ted's the bull. Ted's the big guard body. Ted's the big NFL brawler at right guard. I mean, it just that's who he is. He has the ability to play center, has done an admirable job of it for these seven weeks, now eight weeks. But if you had to start it over and you had more than just a quick change, I think Ference is the center and Ted's the guard. But as a plug-and-play, understand that that's what's going on. You you went with a guy you think know your system a little better than Illuminor does. That's probably most likely where Ference wins the gig. But he's a small guard. I mean, that's one of the smaller guards you'll see in the NFL. He, he's really more of a center that in a pinch can slide over to guard, but it's going to be a bit of a struggle because he's going to face some 320-pound tackles, big dudes that are going to be more powerful than him. You, you, you see less of that as an uncovered center, a guy that can move and help and, and sort of uh, be combo blocking more so than, than he might at that other spot. But anyway, Ference plugs in, and again, watching it back, I expected, you know, a real heavy struggle because I know the Patriots run game wasn't like at full force yesterday, obviously. Uh, there were occasional issues with protection. Ference had some nice blocks. You know, this was not like a him losing all the time kind of thing. So if that was people's perception out there, they shouldn't have it. And that's my crystal clear thing. By bringing him up, you have to address it. I think he was put in an uncomfortable spot by playing a position that's less natural for him. Uh, but he did miss some blocks. And I know when he misses those blocks and people send it back and say, ah, he sucks, they suck, blah, 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 all that kind of hot take stuff. But I think it's much more complicated than that. I, some of one of the, the blocks that he gave up that I think really helped end a, an, end a third uh, a third uh, down drive that was deep in the red zone. The Patriots had to settle for a field goal. He actually got beat on an inside rush by Vernon. Uh, so they'd move Vernon off the right edge and put him back inside, right over that guard. And that's one when you know if you're 260 plus or maybe even 270 pound defensive end. 
those 290 guards are actually pretty close to your side. That's a, that's a matchup you like. So I, it looked to be purposeful to me. Bring him back inside rather than put him over big, you know, big new house. And I worked him over, got right up in the middle into Brady's face. Brady had to throw him away. That was a loss by Ference. Fair. Uh, but there's also a handful of wins, enough wins to where it was like, okay, no, of course this isn't the high-flying offense of what you'll expect when they're all back and ready to roll. It's a limited group, but it's still limited winning. It's still multi-scores out in front of bad teams. It's still comfortably able to compete with any other of these best teams. So he did a good job. He didn't do a great job. He didn't do an excellent job, uh, but he did a good job. So he doesn't deserve to be shat on. He's a backup player who's been a an up and down off the roster through several teams kind of NFL guy, and he came in and plugged and play and helped them win. So he deserves some credit for that. Now Morehouse, or Newhouse, excuse me, at the left side, he did have some struggles, but he also made some plays. So, And that's really kind of the story of what we're talking about here. If you're able to get up 20 plays, 20 points in a rainy, mucky day, you won on three drives, and that is what happened. And so you had some, you, you probably had more wins and losses. And that's kind of how, I think that's the lens that this all needs to be looked through. Had more wins and losses. Gave up some, yes. Vernon makes $18 million a year. The, the, the more, uh, new house is a plug-and-play tackle who's done a really good job of coming in and keeping things afloat. Uh, but, yeah, he's going to give up some plays. <laughs> 19 million versus a million or two or whatever it is as he's making as a backup tackle. Yeah, yeah. that's a, Congratulations, Cuso. You have solved the mystery. He did not win every snap against uh, Miles Garrett and Vernon. And not doing so is not some, you know, masterful football inside of an issue. It's kind of expected. Uh, now, they chipped for him some uh, on the touchdown to Julian Edelman. Got a really nice chip on, I believe it was Garrett in that instant. And it's where Morehouse kind of bodied him up after the chip, locks him, has him held nice and tight. But the offensive running game, I think, was uh, a day where it, it had a couple good series early in the game and then just wasn't much to be found later in the game. Excited to see what Rex Burkhead can do in coming weeks, but he was used a few times and on the sweat surface coming back from a foot injury, I can see how, man, that was not the condition to try to get back and feel normal. So hopefully get dryness and uh, a normalness uh, against the Ravens down there next week. I think Rex bouncing back in there can be a nice boost to the offense. But again, I think this is a moment where you can bitch about the offensive line or you can tip their cap and say, wow, uh, three replacement starters in a shitty situation like that, one of whom came in right at the end of the week in a position that's not natural to him against uh, one of the better end combos that you really have in football. Imagine had that playoff game a year ago against Bosa and Ingram been with the, a cobbled together group that the Patriots are putting on the field now. Yeah, the the the, the, uh, the excuse me. The results may have looked more like that because that's what happens in the NFL when you're with three replacement offensive starters. You you tip your cap to them when they continue to put forth efforts that help you win, but you don't expect thirty point offense. You just if you if that's the expectation, it's unreasonable. And again, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, so. Let's move on here, sort of into the particulars, and I'll do this quickly in five minutes ish because I don't want to. I don't want to beat you over the head with every play of this Browns game. Um, the ball to Dorsett early was gorgeous. That Brady sort of put it in there. Um, Romo was gushing on the broadcast. I think that was a, it was a really good game to have him in our, on there for insight because you get a, a quarterback's point of view of what it's like to throw a waterlogged 
can't find the laces. They're wet and matted down anyway. Uh, you're not able to spin it. You're almost pushing it out to the sidelines. It was it was affecting both quarterbacks dramatically. So, but that ball that Brady threw to Dorsett, the 33-yarder on third and six, fade to the outside into the bucket, gorgeous. And this was actually that play that I referenced just a few minutes ago, where Newhouse handled Garrett really nice on that third down play with the help in the chip from White. Um, Nice stop there. And and it was funny, too, because the broadcast group had really built up Garrett. Oh, now it's third and six. This is when Garrett is really going to get after Tom Brady. He's been doing this to quarterbacks all year. And it was like, okay, they know that. Nice chip, solidifies the pocket. Brady throws one of the best balls of the day. A gorgeous throw, one that they really needed. Uh, third and seven, you get the orbit motion from Sanu. Orbit is like, you know, jet is when they run straight across the formation, speed motion, pre-snap. Orbit's when they sort of arc around the back, and his orbit motion actually brought him to sort of a standstill behind Brady in a pistol alignment. Uh, you know, gun is where they're full back, five, six yards, whatever the heck it is. Uh, uh, pistols when they're up, maybe at three and a half or four, and then allowing the back to be behind them. Uh, they tried some game plan plays with Sanu. He made some nice catches down the stretch in the second half. They struggled connecting on the first couple. You could tell these are both game plan created plays for Sanu. It's like, you know, can't teach him a little offense. Let's let him block uh, as an extended guy. And then let's let him have a couple plays that are designed just for him that he can just learn those plays. And let's see if we can execute those. They missed on the first two. This was a quick wide, uh, basically emotions back the orbit motion that I mentioned, he's directly behind Brady uh, and Brady's sort of half gun pistol, you call it. Uh, and he runs a quick wide and it was meant to just go right to Sanum. He's going to need to make the first guy miss and Tom threw it like a yard or two out in front of his feet. Kind of like a bad ball by Tom. Again, it's waterlogged. You know, it, it's not like it's easy to do, but unfortunately whiffed on that one. And, you know, I wouldn't even necessarily chalk that up to they're not on the same page and all that stuff yet. I thought Sanu's route was actually where you would run it. it. The depth and flatness of it looked about right. Had he been sharper up to where Tom was throwing that ball, he probably gets killed. You know, you're being run into the to the hit there a little bit. So you kind of needed the space. Get him the quick wide, get him the ball. Tommy just missed on that particular one. Um, fourth and seven here, they go for it, which is crazy. But in these conditions, uh, as I mentioned, I think earlier off the top, uh, wow, field goals, uh, snapping the ball, uh, holding the punters were having issues. I saw balls go through punters' hands and hit them in a chest in pregame. Belichick mentioned this in postgame. He's like, well, there was a legitimate concern, not just for how you could kick it, because your plant foot's going to be in a pile of water. Uh, you could tell that Mike Nugent was struggling with that, as any normal kicker would. Of course, you're going to. It's a really rough day to be kicking. Even though the surface is artificial, it, it, it the water doesn't always necessarily go down into the dirt and disappear. It, it, it stays saturated. It stays splashy. And uh, the plant leg slipping, you know, we saw tacklers slipping, you know, so a lot of people go down on that big, long chub run. We'll get to it here in a second. But beyond just the kicker portion of it, the operation portion of it, the hold was all over the place. I saw multiple dropped holds or either just misplaced or not quite down in time or sideways kind of deals uh, in pregame. And I obviously... Ernie Adams and, and Bill saw that as well because they weren't going to risk it. Not because of a lack of faith in Nugent, don't read into it as that, but because the operation was a major problem when things were whipping the way they were in that first half. So that was kind of that. But considering uh, 
considering the conditions, they're on the 33. It's fourth and seven. They have faith in the Patriots' uh, defense. They're going to go for it, and they did. Edelman runs a curl between two two zone defenders. I don't know why on a zone, on a fourth and seven, you're not plastering, even though it's zone still not – like almost man zone dropping off him. You you have an area, but go to him first and react to to Jules. He he sits down in between two zone defenders, and you're going in your head – how do you not cover that guy fourth and seven? What are you doing? Great ball. Tom drives it low into sort of the hole, the little tunnel area between the two defenders as they dive back in, but needed that perfectly placed ball. Julian able to make the tough catch there in the driving rain. You have to just sort of like basket catch it and sort of wrap your body around it uh, to make sure you can secure it. But that was a big play and a big moment. Most successful run of the day follows this 16-yard Michelle run. Nice trap block on the inside by Tomlinson. New tight end uses sort of a lead back there. He did a really nice job on that play. And this was the one where I noticed Mohamed Sanu downfield. He's blocking his guy well beyond the free safety level, uh, pushing his guy deep and beyond. It's a really nice block. So you've got sort of a second level uh, secured there by Sanu. First, first level secured there by Tomlinson. Uh, Ference had a nice sort of turn seal block. That was sort of one of the better orchestrated offensive plays they had of the day. Michelle hits the hole quickly. Followed then here a little bit later by Brady's third and two near interception. That was really his his bad, bad play of the day. Um, and I think we can fairly say people are looking for the cliff bullshit, uh, but also sort of you know, what attributes does Tom now not have? Where is he limited? Where is there some recession kind of thing? I would say in the field, Tom Brady is still the guy you'd want to have for any quarterback in the league, uh, if especially one you that you would want managing a bad, bad bad's a wrong word, but that's unfair. Uh, that you would want managing a transition situation with an offense where there's all these parts not particularly perfect. Brady's who you want managing that situation. This is a man management job. You have kind of receivers come in and out the door. The offensive line has now got three replacement stars. As I said, You're, you've turned over two starting tight ends, replaced them with two other starting tight ends. You've lost your starting uh, Pro Bowl-type fullback, and you put in a guy after him, and then you lost him as well. Uh, you're, you're cycling. You've seen different receivers pack packages virtually every week. Who would you want more to manage that than Tom Brady? He's the guy in the entire NFL. I don't care about the home stuff. He is still the best management of crisis, uh, manage, making good things out of potentially average things, uh, making great things out of good things. That's still Brady. It's all still there, especially in, in bad conditions like yesterday. Being able to play above the nonsense going around him and get enough scores on the board and manage the clock well enough to run that thing out and, and get out of there with a victory, uh, you know, and know that you have the nice complimentary piece on the other side. Brady is still that guy. Where Brady is not the GOAT. Uh, well, he is the GOAT being greatest of all time, but where he's not the greatest right now in the NFL is in the red zone. He's not. There are better quarterbacks from the 10 and than Tom. There there are. Now, if you can keep him in the pocket, he'll still pick apart better than anyone as far as targeting the red zone. But the issue that teams have sort of hit upon, apparently, with Tom is because of the little less mobility, uh, he slides so expertly within the pocket, you don't want to keep Tom in the pocket. That's where he's going to kill you. Uh, they try to flush him. They go out of their way to block, rush, rush hard inside, um, ends making inside moves, overloading the guards, pushing everything right up that front porch to get Tom moving. Because when he's moving, no, he's, that, that's never been his thing. So the more mobile guys out there, your Russell Wilsons, your Mahomes, uh, maybe even Deshaun Watson, those guys on the move in that 
separate little boutique game that is inside the 10. Uh, those guys are better at that stuff. So I think right now, that's probably the biggest area of legitimate concern. Not concerns with the Z, but legitimate concern for the offense where it will need to be in January. I don't know if you, you – and I say concern. It's not that you would want to spend your time between now and then worrying about it, but that that is certainly something that needs to be addressed. They're not a great red zone team right now. Uh, because of the, the quarterback being the kind of guy he is, he will absolutely – pick you apart if you're given a pocket and he's allowed to stay in that pocket. But if he has to go extended left or right of the thing, he doesn't move as well, uh, obviously, and they need to manufacture down there, which is okay and pretty normal for teams that have pocket quarterbacks. Uh, you know, you can go back to Peyton Manning. It's not like Peyton Manning was doing a lot on the move. So, I think that's sort of the new conditions you have to understand. You don't have the overwhelming red zone winner in Rob Gronkowski anymore. Your quarterback isn't ideally suited to the smaller area space down there. If you're able to get him out of the pocket, if he's in, it's still all the good stuff from out in the field. But in that environment, you need to find and manufacture uh, uh, movement. You know, you you got maybe you come through the run game, but with the offensive line so in flux, maybe that's not where it is. But it has to come with a lot of tricks, unfortunately. And that's just, yeah, but it, maybe not unfortunately. Maybe that's not even fair. But the tip passes forward, sort of the shuffle stuff, the jet motions, the picking people through the route tree. You know. How, how Tom can quickly find them out of a bunch, backline plays where they sort of zig in and then back out. You're going to have to become red zone creative. That is the area where this offense has failed some uh, and been a little more, you know, sort of on the edge of that would be the warranted sort of uh, disappointment. They, they aren't as good. They aren't good enough in the red zone. And I would say I'm guessing that my buddy would probably agree with me on that. So they got to figure that part out. But here again, you have all the time in the world. Can Watson can be a down there target. Uh, they can be a better red zone running team. I think with Rex Burkhead more usage. Uh, Sony out in the field has shown some ability, but he's an up and down guy as far as making space and there isn't a lot. Uh, Rex does better on creating his own. So a healthier version, which we didn't see against the Browns, I think may be able to get more done down there as far as just a quick burst, energetic, make first guy miss, slash and slide and get four, five to six. Uh, I think his inclusion in the red zone, I think he's your red zone runner. Let's put it that way going forward. James out of the backfield, James on a mismatch, James White on a mismatch with the linebacker, finding that somehow, some way. But you can't really get into the extended plays world. We'll call it even 50. 15 yard and in uh, with the, with that offense because of the quarterback and what his extreme skills are, but what a couple of his limitations are as well. So that's where I would see that stuff going forward. They're going to have to get creative. This is on Josh McDaniels, but he has got a deep bucket of stuff to come up with and make something of this offense. So they will. And again, all they got to do is figure it out in two and a half months time. Put your chip there that they will. Romo, zero blitz on first down. I love this. He went he went long in the broadcast. Hope you caught that, but it was amazing that they on first down they did throw a screen to Beckham. But how crazy was it that the Patriots came out and said, Don't care you got Beckham. Don't care. Stephon Gilmore will line on him. We're still doing zero blitz. They have five eligibles covered by five people and the other six rush. It's just crazy they're doing this, but it is so football comedy, unintentional comedy. Love to watch it. Chubb, I'm just gonna go here through the the three turnovers. I'll do it very quickly. And then we'll help eject out of this pod. But I thought it was important, rather than defensively going through the entirety of this, to really just touch, touch quickly on the three turnovers that got this thing out to a 17-0 lead and allowed the Patriots to sort of change their mode offensively, slow things, get into clock control, win a couple more possessions, and finish the thing out. That's really what went down on this bad conditions day. 
with a roster in flux. Uh, but let's. But then the last point I'll need to touch on is the run defense because this is the first time we've seen them give up significant yards on the ground as a defense, although they played great versus the points component. So Chubb fumbles the first one. Awesome job there by Kyle Van Noy, and you guys know that that's the position I played. I was an outside linebacker, and you know, being the force player, did that my whole life and career, high school, college, and, and the NFL. It's just how are you going to set the edge? How are you going to play force? What I really like what he did there is something that you often see defensive backs do, but a lot of times the bigger guys like us, you know, we have egos. We we want to we want to knock the shit out of the pulling offensive lineman. We want to try to challenge them up high, even though they outweigh us by 50, 60, 70 pounds. You know, we just kind of have that in you. Like, fuck you, I want to hit you too. Uh, although it may not be the smartest thing to necessarily do because your body gets moved by those bigger dudes. Uh, my buddy Andrewsy, Andrewsy's three and a lot, three something. I won't say it on the air, Joe, but he's a heavy dude. When a guy like that comes pulling out at you. Me hitting him up high with my 250 or 60-pound body, is it's a mismatch. It really is. So Van Noy did what is smart and what a lot of linebackers don't often do, and he cut the cutter. You know, a lot of these guys will pull, uh, and we see offensive linemen in the NFL across the league, special teams, a lot of the zone, runs, uh, the zone stretch scheme stuff. They dive at linebackers' legs. They dive at ends' legs. They dive at the tackles' legs. They like to cut block. What Van Noy did is against a big 6'3", 6'4", pulling dude, he cut him. He got underneath his kneecaps, not just into his waist. He cut him. So what happens there is you make a pile. You're never going to make the play yourself, but you make a pile. The play can't extend. The hole closes considerably. If you hit him up high and just have a big sort of wedge-type collision, a lot of times the the linebackers bounce back. You know, it's hard to, you know, the mass thing, <laughs> the whole force uh, equals mass times acceleration, all that. But anyway, so Vanoy cut him expertly. So chops him right in that moment. And you could tell the offensive line wasn't ready for it. And his legs flail up in the air and that flailing leg hits the ball, knocks it out of Chubb. You'll, that was crazy. Hightower scoops it up, score, awesome play, but all set, all predicated there on Vanoy going a little extra and going low and sort of putting his own little ego in his pocket and saying, screw this, I'm going to kill this play. And he did. And he went low and uh, loved to see it. They cut us all the time, cut him back. I love that stuff. Um, Chubb's fumble number two, four missed tackles in the rain. And Belichick actually referenced this in his postgame presser. He's like, we were having a lot of trouble tackling them. Not because we're not good tacklers. This is an exceptional tackling team. But the issue was, they're wet, you're wet, everyone's sliding off of one another. You're grabbing, wrapping, you're rolling, you're doing, you know, you're driving through. A lot of things that typically work didn't work on that day. And that big chub run that turned into the Jonathan Jones strip and fumble, there were four missed tackles before Chubb, uh, before John got it off him. Uh, first and foremost, Jason McCourty was off, uh, had an opportunity, got himself free, tackle in the hole, dove, shot, just slid right down that slick body. It's like he was covered in... I don't know, Noxzema or whatever. So you just slick and slide. Like you just look like, oh, geez. You know, that's the kind of thing you're not going to normally see uh, Jason do. He's a pretty sure tackling corner, but he missed in the hole. Okay. Chubb's an exceptional back. He's going to make you miss more tackles than most backs will. That happened. But then Hightower dove and missed and was right there, not just in the hole, but sort of after the hole. But they would keep it to like a seven or eight yard kind of thing. So you've got two missed tackles by two relatively sure tackling guys. That was like, hmm, okay. Play extends. Now, Patrick Chung's got the opportunity. He's sort of the chase player now. He's obviously noticed that something's gone down. A couple tackles have been missed. Got to get this dude down. And Chung, I think, made a mistake here. Um, 
he basically went after the ball identically as John Jones did. And we know Patrick is is tremendous at, at, at causing sort of turnovers himself. Punches, strip is, strips, uh, pulling up the elbow, punching out from below, grabbing the tip from the front, you know, chops. So there's, there's a hot, there's half dozen different ways to get it. And Patrick's really good at that, has a great history of his own personal ball disruption. But in chase mode here, he didn't attempt to to make the tackle. So it's been missed by two. And I think, you know, I, I think I'm guessing on what the coaching would be here. When we've when you've seen two other people miss the tackle now, now it's time to secure the damn thing and get him down and live to fight another day. Chung went with the full no tackle secure just slice at the ball and his chop missed and he goes to the ground. So that qualifies there, I guess, as a third missed tackle. So you've got three of them now, and the ball advances to Devin, who had been at free safety. He fronts it up, and Devin attempts to make a move on it, but or make a make a shoot on the tackle and uh, on Chubb, and slides straight down and off it again. Uh, it's it's Vaseline City. It's like oh geez, everyone's falling right through this. Chung is uh, excuse me, Chubb is strong as shit running through these things, and his combination of both making people miss and ability to run through those tackles, and then also the speed that comes after it, pretty rare. Don't think he's quite Saquon Barkley, but he's not far behind that. This dude's special, um, and one of the best players on that football team, one of the best runners, period, in the whole NFL. Very similar to Ezekiel Elliott, I think, in that regard. So he runs through that thing. You've had four people miss a tackle. John Jones has been knocked on the ground at the top of the screen if you're watching the broadcast. And check my tweet out uh, from uh, earlier on Monday. I, I, I detailed that one a little more. But what was cool about John is he was far out of this play, top of the screen, and he actually gets knocked down, rolled by one of their offensive linemen, punches him to the ground. But that's what makes this play so cool. John Jones is on the ground gets up, bounces back up quickly. And this is something we really hammer with my youth football kids, 11-year-olds. Being down on the ground happens. How quickly do you get up? Is it hot coal? So you're in, you know, you're in the lava field. Get the fuck up off the ground. And that John Jones, what he did so incredibly well there is barely any of his surface actually goes to the ground. He's clearly tripped. He's lost his feet. Uh, but maybe the knee pads touch. Maybe the hands just get to the ground. But he's down. Maybe the chest just grazes that false surface. But he's bouncing back up and back into a full sprint. So down, back up, down, back up. It's just like some some military shit on up, down. So really, really impressive there that, hey, shit happens. Sometimes you lose a block. He got knocked down. Sometimes the big guy gets you. Fucking weighs 150 pounds more than John probably does. But he got him down. John bounces back up and chases this thing down. I saw a lot of allude, alluding on my Twitter uh, feed or referencing, excuse me, uh, the Ben Watson chase down to Champ Bailey in the in the playoff game years and years and years ago. And it's, it's pretty apropos, but I would say this is even a step beyond that, other than it's not in, you know, the conditions that that, that, that Ben was doing and the sort of the, the magnitude of the moment, that being the playoffs. But John not only was down and back up, not only chased it down after four other people had missed those tackles, but he chops and gets it out. Force fumble, recovery, change of possession tremendous play and he went with the over the head punch overhand punch off the top of the thing had clearly been eyeing that thing he was as he was advancing towards it didn't secure the tackle just went for it and sort of you know shoot the moon kind of situation great job there by him the third and final turnover that you're all obviously very aware of is Lawrence Guy popping through with great get off he was going through a hole where the, the offensive lineman in front of him was pulling to the play side where they were going to do that sort of little tap forward pass kind of thing off motion. So they're, they're attempting to tap it forward on the wing. Uh, the guy in front of Lawrence is not going to block Lawrence. The presumption here is that he won't get off as well as he did. Uh, but Lawrence had either, either studied some film, knew this thing was coming, uh, had a beat on whatever the snap count was, whatever it may be. But he did everything perfect there. Uh, he actually beat the back to the ball. 
you know, not just beating the blocker, not just, you know, getting off before the blocker can get out of the, get out of the way, but he beat the back and the back knows the fucking snap count. The back knows what he's doing. He's moving from the wing position. He's supposed to be the quickest and first one there. A lot of times the back will actually beat the blocker, but you do have to kind of hold for just a second to let the blocker get clear and get out in front of you. But uh, that there was one of those, you know, it's really the third time in one in a quick sequence. Three plays in a row, three turnovers for the Patriots defense, all three of sort of just NFL oddity. And I thought that was kind of crazy, and obviously everyone else seemed to as well. But, uh, again, what a, what a heady group this Patriots team has, has been uh, proving to be over the course of this early season. Now, that you know of the three turnovers, and as much as we talked up the, 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 the legitimate concern of Baker Mayfield maybe turning the football over throughout the course of this game, I think I need to pause for a second here and give him a lot of credit. Those three wild turnovers really aren't on him. Neither of the three are. And he did not turn the ball over late in the game. Now, granted, there was the really badly thrown ball that was in Stephon Gilmore's hands that Gilmore didn't catch. That should have and could have easily gone down as a turnover for Baker. So it's not as if Baker played this thing perfectly. And he also took several bad sacks late where I think he should have just simply been throwing the ball away. Was fortunate. And there to not get the ball taken off on him, especially one of those it was one of the late ones where Jamie Collins really came in and plowed him, and uh, he had been hit prior to that, I believe, and it was sort of like, hey, you're, you're retreating, get up, put that thing away. It's exposed. Jamie hit him, but you know, I guess credit to him anyway. He was able to hang on to that thing. But let's go into the run stuff. So now. The Patriots will commit a certain amount of people to the box based upon game situation. I think that's very important to understand here. Yes, they got gashed on the ground. Yes, the the, the big chub run was atrocious, but it's, I think, more uh, something that you won't see happen again unless they're in a rainstorm and you see people slipping and sliding and falling over the place because that's what's more that was more about than it was push at the defensive line. Um, later in the game, there were there was the the a couple series where they were running off chunks. They were very effective on the ground, but part of that is back to the old style. Once the Patriots were up 17, nothing, once the Patriots had put the score out there with some gap between them, they stopped taking chances. And part of that is, Hey, we're just going to go with four down. We're going to have six man boxes. The seventh is going to be a late safety. Um, we'll, we're, we're six but seven, six but seven. It's not the kind of stuff you're going to put forward where you're going to overcommit and say, we have to stop Chubb. They never really got to that until, excuse me, after a couple series of too many chunks there, even some that didn't necessarily end in scores, there was an adjustment where they said, okay, let's go back and try some straight-up basic, uh, straight-up regular defense, three, four basic kind of stuff, and you bring wise and uh, Shelton and Guy onto the field together as opposed to the four-man sub-front kind of feel with two off the lines in the late safety that I mentioned before. This is the full seven, eighth guy is the actual safety down. So the safety down becomes sort of the really overload number. When the Patriots commit to that, they'll stop anyone, and they did. They, they were much better against the run and Chung later. But at those times, excuse me, Chubb, not Chung, Chubb. But they were, uh, I think, the moments of vulnerability that you saw in part are by choice. It was not, hey, we're loading it and still can't stop them. That's not what happened. I was, I was curious to see that. I want to go back and check some of the fronts. They made some change configuration stuff. And maybe, maybe throughout the course of this week, I'll throw some videos out there to show you specifically the changes. Those are some things that are kind of tough, obviously, here to talk through on a podcast. So I won't, I won't bore you there or confuse you. But I came away from it going, ah. Oh, this is the first time we've seen a run issue. Let's go research that. Let's go take a peek and see uh, where the problem is. 
Oh, okay. They went, this is a math thing. This is just how many they're going to commit, where they're going to need to commit them, what they think to be the bigger issue now versus a trailing team. And it wasn't run in part because, you know, they hurt themselves when you run the ball that much and, and don't put scores in. There was, I believe, a 12 play drive that the, the Browns had had a 12 play drive that consumed a whole bunch of clock that ended in a three pointer. And you call that a win. So part of that is tactical. So it's been fun watching this team blitz everyone. It's been fun watching them sort of take the ball off everyone down and down out. But there does come a mode of time in the game where situationally your, your frame of mind changes. It's terrible out here. The last thing we want to do is overcommit and give a cheap one. We saw the Jets have that. Uh, happened against him with a one one missed tackle against Beckham on a slant, and he goes and he's gone. So I think you got to the point of the game, even though your 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 faith in Gilmore is high and off the charts, and he did an excellent job in holding Beckham down. Uh, the box commitment was never going to be a thing; it wouldn't have made a ton of sense to do the box over commitment, excuse me, uh, because of the lead that they held and the threat of the home run threat of a couple of the players that they had. So there was a time where they said you know what, let's at least try regular defense. I don't call that overcommit. I just say, hey, we're going to put seven bigger humans in here. Once they had gone that route, things settled, and that's what you want to see. So nice in-game adjustment for the Patriots to finish that thing off. So that's the end of the Razor show. I put a long one out there for you folks today because I thought there was a lot to cover. Obviously, in the game itself, uh, some some huge positives in the, in the disruption thing continuing to go on. The Patriots' offense was gritty. It was resourceful. It did more than enough to win. It managed its situation well, considering the chaos going on in the locker room. That offense is going to look markedly different from a month from now. We all know that, so don't complain about what won't be tomorrow. Uh, credit them for what they're able to get through today uh, and the unusualness of the situation that they're fighting through. And uh, I think beyond that, I wanted to also spend a good amount of time on what things look around the rest of the league. And I think this weekend showed a pretty stark picture that concerns with this group simply aren't founded. Let them do their thing. They win. They understand how things go. And there just simply isn't a terrifying team out there that they're about to run into. Any of the more plausible, really legitimately high-end teams, and there's just a couple of them, they would only see the Patriots potentially this entire season on the final game of the year in Miami were that to happen. That's all you need to know. So don't wet your sheets. It's a pain in the ass to have to wash them. It's a pain in the ass to have to keep wetting clothes. So just uh, just don't worry about that. Not that any of my listeners do that. I know you don't. I know, those, I know that's not you folks. That's not who tunes into the Razor Show. That's who needs to go out and educate those that should be listening to the Razor Show and having a dry outfit. That's all for me, Matt Chatham. Enjoy the week, folks. Big Ravens game coming up. We'll get into that later in the week. Talk to you. Bye-bye now.